Hello, my name is Brad Henderson. I am a producer over at uh, Vinegar Syndrome, and I have the privilege to talk to Mr. John Johnson, writer, director, uh, and probably many other hats worn <laughs> during the production <laughs> of this film. Uh, Mr. John Johnson, how are you doing? Oh, good, good. Yeah, so it, uh, to kind of jump ahead. right into it, let's just start talking about Curse of the Blue Lights and kind of your history in filmmaking in Pueblo and and what you did there and what led up to this, uh, you know, this horror film. Yeah, well, I've been making movies really since I was 11 and they just got bigger and bigger in scope as the years went by. And I was uh, teaching film at the university here and uh, happened to get a grant from the National Endowment through the Colorado Humanities Program to do a film on the writer Damon Runyon who grew up in Pueblo, uh, but went off to New York and became quite famous. And based on the success of that film, it got a Cine Award out of Washington, D.C. Uh, based on that, we were able to get funding to do a, another film on uh, Zebulon Pike, the Explorer, because we're only about 35 miles from um, Pike's Peak. And so then that, the success of that, it got another Cine Award and it got another award from historians. And based on that, uh, we were able to go ahead and raise funding for a bigger project, which is what you're watching right now, which is uh, Curse of the Blue Lights. This particular sequence starts off the film. We shot it east of Pueblo in an area called Blind, which is an agricultural area real close to uh, the city of Pueblo. And uh, here we have uh, Farmer Jinx played by Don Warren. And he discovers this odd thing in his field. And of course, very kind of gross. And he doesn't know what to make of it. And this sort of plays upon the whole thing of how scarecrows are somewhat uh, odd. Matter of fact, you can see Pike's Peak in the lower right-hand corner there. And he discovers this thing, and before you know it, something happens. And now, um, a little bit about the blue lights for people that don't know uh -huh. um, kind of the history yeah. of the blue lights in Colorado. What, where, obviously, that was a big inspiration, but when did you first hear about that? And, um, you know, it's, was that always something that you wanted to make? It a was always there. Yeah, it was always there. It was always mentioned, and uh, basically, uh, there was a teenage parking area that kids would go to, and they would tell these stories about blue lights along the Arkansas River bottom right there. And so, when we didn't get funding for a bigger film, which was about a half a million dollars, um, we went back to the people that had raised some money, and uh, we said, "Okay, how much can you raise? We'll." we'll put together a film for that amount. And that was uh, Curse of the Blue Lights. It was sold as Curse of the Blue Lights um, domestically, whereas overseas it was sold just as Blue Lights. And so we have this terrible situation here where the scarecrow <laughs> comes to life and uh, kills the guy. Now this here is interesting because um, these are 
teenage kids and as they want to do in horror movies they get involved in the thick of the action fairly quickly and in small towns a lot of their fun basically has to do with these teenage parking areas and so forth and so we're introducing the characters here and the four characters were um this is clay mccaw and becky galladay clay playing paul and becky galladay playing alice and the couple in the back were patrick keller playing ken and sitting next to him is deborah DeVincini. And a lot of these are local actors that have been involved in the Impossible Playhouse, which puts on all kinds of different plays and so forth. And whenever I would do a film project, uh, we would run an ad in the local newspaper. And we would usually get hundreds and hundreds of people that wanted to be involved. And then I would pick a few that I thought would be pretty good for this part or that part and then try them out on VHS. In this case, we're getting basically some of the backstory of the film and the characters and the situation. And all my films tie in with Colorado history, Pueblo history. And so uh, when we didn't get the larger film, which was based on uh, an 1842 or actually 1854 massacre of the fort here, um, what we did was that we decided that we would go ahead and we tried doing a horror fantasy film and using some of the elements that I knew of local history. And then along with Brian, basically Brian Sisson, my assistant director, uh, he knew the horror genre very, very well. And so we, we basically put together the story of these kids that are in the small town and um an, an unusual occurrence happens which basically is uh, a ghoul king and his two minions arrive and they sort of uh upset the balance of this small town and even though we filmed it in pueblo we called it dudley very heavy on uh, makeup effects now, was that something that was always kind of, were you trying to write a script uh, that incorporated heavy effects or was it something like, was it vice versa? Like, you know, with Brian kind of attached was, you know, that was something that you were really looking forward to do, to doing? Right. Yeah. Basically, um, when we couldn't do the much larger project and Brian knew the, the genre very well, and I told him and, and the two other individuals, um, basically, uh, the makeup effects group, which was Brian uh, Sisson, his brother, and uh, Dave Romero, uh, they were all very, very heavily into makeup effects. And so um, I said, if you think you can do an effect, uh, what we'll do is <laughs> I'll write it in. And so little by little, they came up with a number of different, you know, effects and so forth. And so, um, again, they said they could do it. So I would put it in. So most of the effects that, uh, that, um, they came up with, we, we did incorporate in the film.
So it's very heavy on makeup effects and uh, it has amazing sets. For instance, this is the ghoul uh, chamber, which was, jeez, uh, probably 100 feet long and 50 feet wide. We had a large building in downtown Pueblo that was originally a uh, plumbing supply company. And um, when I was teaching for the university at the time, they had a number of these buildings and they weren't empty. And so they showed me various buildings that they had. And I picked this one because it had 26,000 square feet of space and it was perfect for a you know for a studio uh where we could build sets and so forth this is brent rigger on the right who was a local performer he'd been in the air force he'd won a number of awards there for talent contests and so forth he was known as pueblo's baritone had a magnificent rich deep voice and he had sung all over europe because there was a local singing group and basically they would perform all over Europe. And then you've got a couple other individuals there that really uh, the film centers on and do just an incredible job. You have Kent Frizzell on the left playing Boar and you have, um, let me see here. I've got a list of different people I'm trying that to- Willard, right? Yeah, right. Willard. Oh, yeah. there we go. Willard. Willard sends me a Christmas card every year. Uh, but as you can see, they underwent just a tremendous amount of makeup effects. It would usually take them about um, eight hours to do the makeup. And this is where they bring uh, Jinx, who is played by Don Warren, back to their their. Uh, area underneath this uh, mansion and they during this scene is revealed that basically um they're plotting uh to do something with this corpse and bring somebody back to life but yeah kent frizzell and willard um, hall just did an amazing job um under very difficult circumstances and you can see the uh we had um basically um, contact lenses for the eyes. They made various teeth in various, you know, sort of deformed shapes for the, uh, for the mouth and the teeth. And it would usually take them, uh, you know, hours and hours to apply this makeup. And here we have the blue lights, teenage parking lot, not too far from the actual place that was called blue lights. And uh, there's some music playing in the background and uh, a couple guys, Chuck DeBroder played one of the radio announcers and Tom Filograna basically announced that the, the weather and the location and so forth. And you sort of get the feeling like, uh, you know, this is where the kids spend a lot of their weekends. You know, what's uh, kind of fascinating for people that have watched this movie before and kind of grew up with it is you can actually see some of what's going on now <laughs> because this yeah. film has been you know yeah. from VHS and DVD has been a little dark you know with HD yeah. now and HD capabilities it's yeah 
you know, it's, it's kind of remarkable what, you know, we can do in order to, you know, make these, because you're right. I mean, the, the, the film with the sets and especially some of the light, I mean, the lighting is really, really well done um, in this film. And, you know, obviously it mostly takes place at night. So yeah. it's kind of an underground too, or I guess in buildings, not necessarily underground. Um, this is one yeah, of the sequences notorious, that, that we shot outside, you know, we had to shoot it outside by the, because of the cars. On some of the cemetery stuff, the city of Pueblo was willing to do all kinds of things when I was making films, uh, from dumping dirt on streets in the Damon Runyon film to in this film, they even actually said uh, that they were willing to um, dig a grave in an actual graveyard. And I basically said, no, I don't think so. But we shot some of the stuff in the graveyard, which would have been, uh, I would have shot day for night. And it just didn't look as good as the stuff that we did in the studio with a big black backdrop that we got from the local playhouse, the Impossible Players Playhouse. And then we had fog machines and we were able to really control the lighting and make it look just right. Here we're basically doing cross lighting so that they show up and then we start going down into the river bottom. But yeah, this was uh, this is an actual place. I thought you know with kind of your actors and your uh -huh. casting. Um, sure. How did you know you, you used a lot of local people? Obviously. Oh yeah. Did you do a lot of the casting yourself? Did you go to oh, the, yeah. Did you go to plays and like pick people or? No, basically, whenever I would do a film here, we would uh, put something in the paper that we were having a casting call, probably at the Sangre de Cristo Art Center. And it was nothing to get four or 500 people showing up for uh, these casting calls. And then I would look through all the photographs and pick out maybe uh, 20 individuals for each part. And then we would call them in and interview them and talk to them and so forth and narrow it down. Um, I would narrow it down, you know, for this or th that person uh, that I thought would fit, uh, you know, this or that role. And here's some of the other individuals. Um, we had a number of guys that played um, different parts. For instance, um, a lot of the, this is James Asbury, who um, all the people that were in the cast were also on the um, crew. And so in the gallery of photographs that's with this, when you look through there, you'll see a lot of these people at some point in front of the camera and then quite often also behind the camera. Like a true independent movie there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, got, you have to, you have to, you oh, got to sure. learn how to do things too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so everybody had a number of different uh, roles to play, you know, in the, uh, in the show. And so, uh, this is sort of a mix of two different things. One is, um, you know, the stuff that we shot on location along the Arkansas river. And then in some of this, which I can identify, it basically is what happened, uh, when we shot in the studio. That's James Asbury on the ground. And this again is the scene where 
the kids at the parking area actually encounter something which is rather unusual. So the, the makeup effects guys were not only doing makeup effects on uh, the the guys that were paying, playing creatures and so forth, but they were also, you know, creating various other things that would, you know, be parts of bits throughout the throughout the film. Yeah. These were long nights of shooting. Sometimes we would start uh, when the sun went down after it got, you know, totally dark and we'd still be shooting just uh, shy of uh, sunrise. But I was very happy with all the kids' performances. I thought they just did great. And they all tended to have uh, somewhat, you know, unique personalities and stuff, which I tried to put some of that in the script, but then they all seemed to take it a little bit further and, you know, push those unique characteristics a little bit more. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Is because the, the the amount of actors in this film is 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 quite significant, being <laughs> so you know low budget. Um, yeah. That you know even the monsters uh, have mm -hmm. their own personalities, and you know yeah. can't bring something to the table with with mm -hmm. Boar and and same thing with Will. Like there, so I, I guess my question uh -huh. is when developing the script, like you said, you have little things. Did all the monsters have personalities? Was that the idea right out of the gate? Or were they supposed to be monsters and then the actors, you know, added a little bit more to it? Um, what I tried to do is, is again, kind of build each, each character into slightly different, you know, so the actor would have something to go for. But really, if you choose, you know, performers, and some people are born performers and others nothing you can do can can help them and stuff but uh, a born performer will usually take what's on the page and really sort of think about it kind of interpret it you know work on it uh, really to kind of see you know what they can do to 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 make it you know kind of stand out but yeah it was it was quite a quite a thing we all learned a lot on this one it was uh, totally different than the other two films i'd done much longer, much more involved, more people, longer schedule. We were shooting for about a year because there's so many makeup effects and stuff. Yeah, I remember you saying that it was uh, about about a year. Um, uh -huh. Now, was there was that mainly like did all the actors kind of come back around that, or did you solely focus on weeks on maybe like you know the monsters and their layer yeah. and stuff like that? Well, we didn't get all of the money at once. So as we got money and things were completed or ready to shoot, then we would go ahead and shoot them. Mm -hmm. So for instance, here's Marty Bikina, who uh, was a high school teacher, but we have him playing a cop and he's interrupting the kids and sort of saying, you know, what are you doing out here? And what's this all about? Uh, but the long schedule had to do with a lot of the complex um, effects that we had. It had to do with... Um, you know, which people were available at what time. Um, so the scheduling, you know, of, of all these kids, you know, was something else. Uh, some performers would be available at certain times, uh, you know, some locations would only be available at certain times. Um, on a big film, you'd basically schedule it totally around the people you know if you only had a certain name actor for a certain number of days 
you would concentrate on, on getting you know that person in and out as quick as possible but as basically everybody pretty much lived here uh, and the locations were were pretty available a lot of times um, our schedule and the way we shot and when we shot was pretty much uh, uh, built around uh, when this or that makeup effect might be might be ready to go we had a, a makeup effects uh, a regular makeup person um, Cheryl Swartz uh, who actually we had a number of people that actually had had trained or trained in LA or worked in LA um, learning their craft and Cheryl had uh, a few decades earlier had been in LA and learned uh, traditional film makeup and so she was handling uh, all of the regular makeup and then of course there were so many people and and you know so um, so much makeup not only regular makeup but uh, advanced makeup that we had a number of makeup assistants um, total families would be involved for instance we had the erickson family pat erickson uh, was an early continuity person and bookkeeper and her and her daughters uh robin and gwen helped a lot with the hair and the makeup for most of the cast and then, then again you had um brian mark and dave who basically were overseeing most of the um you know specific makeup effects and they had help. Uh, Robin helped him out. Joe Orr helped him out. Deanne Romero helped him out. So uh, it was just sort of like all hands on deck. And we attracted so many people that loved movies and really wanted to be uh, involved in any way, you know, shape or form that they could. Now, you um, obviously lived blue lights more than anybody. Um, yeah. Because obviously you were around every time for a year when other people were coming and going. Uh -huh. um, what were you doing around the time of, of making this? Because this solely wasn't something you were focusing on, right? Like all day, every day for a year? What... Yes, it was two years. It was two oh. years. Two years full time for me and Brian. Wow. After I made my first film, I was teaching at the university at the time. And through that first film, uh, we attracted a, um, a Denver oil man who was from Pueblo originally. And he wanted to see our film. He'd heard about the Runyon film, which was 40 minutes long. And so we went and we showed him the film. And um, <clears throat> he said, why don't you come, come back uh, in a couple of weeks and um, maybe I can help you you know, fund another film. And so at that point in time, I was uh, uh, good friends with uh, Joel Scherzer, who's still a very good buddy of mine. And uh, he had written the Damon Runyon script. And so we went back and approached um, this friend of his uh, in Denver. And when we went back, he said, I not only want to be involved with your next film, I want to be involved with all your films. And uh, so he put a lot of money into the pre-production for this film called Red Wind, which basically was about a lot of the early history of our area and a lot of the things that happened. And 
the ramifications in present day in uh, terms of a series of murders. And so we worked on this script and uh, that first oil man, oil man was uh, Glenn Garrett and he uh, provided a lot of funding. Uh, so we basically got that film uh, pretty much ready to shoot. Found locations, uh, held a casting call, uh, worked out the production breakdown board, everything. And uh, oil film goes up and the oil film goes, I mean, the oil business goes up and the oil business goes down. And um, I was on the verge of going to California. Matter of fact, once I got involved with Glenn Garrett, I was in California probably once a year or twice a year just trying to put things together. Well, uh, we showed Runyon to a number of other people. Um, I found another backer. His name was Larry Birch, another oil man, natural gas. And um, he saw one of my presentations and he got involved. And uh, um, so then with Larry, we bought all kinds of equipment. At one point we owned um, all the equipment of a my dad was in local TV on Channel 5 here, and his uh, one of his good friends there, Bill Baker, had uh, worked for an uh, oil company, and they had a, an entire production uh, suite of equipment that he had in storage. And so um, with Larry's help, I purchased that whole thing. We got office equipment, editing tables, you name it. Uh, 16BL camera, Nagra recorder, the whole thing. So that gave us the basis of our production equipment. Here is, this is, we shot this in the studio in a long, in a hundred foot uh, long tunnel that Bill um, Bellas, Bob Bellas rather, who had worked for Paramount and also lived here, he oversaw the set construction. Um, matter of fact, you can see a lot of the set construction with the these are all cardboard boxes that are textured and painted black along the edge. But anyway, back to my story on, on the funding and so forth. Um, we purchased a 35BL uh, setup. Matter of fact, it was used on uh, You Only Live Twice and Thunderball uh, from the great old uh, cinematographer, underwater cinematographer, Lamar Bourne. And so we had an extensive set of equipment. So the equipment did not limit when or how we could, uh, how we could uh, progress. Here's Kent Frizzell as uh, Bohr. And so uh, again, oil business goes up, oil business goes down. Through Larry, I met an individual, uh, L. Mac Vaughn, who was located out in Aurora, which is an Eastern suburb of Denver. And um, he wanted to get involved, uh, but we weren't sure exactly that we could get the rights to Red Wind totally free. And so what happened was that Brian and I worked on a number of scripts, uh, Comic Book Hero, which was a uh, sort of a role-playing thing of where a kid imagines all these different things in his life as if he was a comic book hero. Uh, we wrote a Western called Jake of the Overland Stage <clears throat> and try as we might, each one of these was much bigger than Red Wind, and we couldn't fund, fund Red Wind at a half million dollars. Um, anyway, with L. Mac Vaughn and his financial group involved, we attracted investors from across the country, including uh, 
a number of members of the Denver Nuggets. And we were basically looking for a half a million dollars. Yeah. And all they could raise was close to 200,000. And so we did three different prospectuses. And basically, if you do a prospectus and it's actually done correctly, you put in there about a million different ways. You're nuts if you invest in these movies. <laughs> because there's so much uh, that can go wrong, you know. So then, um, finally, after three or four times of this, we were up there one day and we said, okay, you can't raise a half million for a red win. You give us a figure, and it was a little less than 200,000 of what you have raised. <clears throat> and we'll come back in a while uh, with a project that we can do. And that's when Brian kicked into hard, high gear and he said, I know this genre. We can do this. I know the makeup effects and so forth. We just need to come up with a story. So two weeks later, we took my script for Curse of the Blue Lights uh, to this financial planner, this financial group, and they released a uh, prospectus, which I think at that point in time was the fourth one. And so again, we started raising money again and we'd get dribs and drabs of money. This is our set, 100, 100 by 150 foot square set on the main floor of our studio, which was in downtown Pueblo at 175 South Santa Fe, the old Santa Fe highway that went from Santa Fe up to Denver. And you can see we have total control um, of the lighting. I mean, it looks, uh, it looks really good. Now this is actually on the bank of the Arkansas. So we're intercutting some studio stuff with stuff that was on location. And so once that prospectus was presented, the people that had previously tried investing in Red Wind, little by little came back to invest in Blue Lights. And we had, as you do, if you believe in yourself and, and your people and the project, family, friends, Denver Nuggets, so forth, invest. And um, I did big presentations in Denver um, to auditoriums. I did individual presentations and so forth. And so we would get dribs and drabs of money in. And as we got the money, uh, then we would go ahead and um, shoot this or that. It's so quite it's, remarkable, to be honest with you. It's a, it's a twisting story, you know. Um, yeah. I have uh, three degrees in photography. Um, and that helped convince people. I think uh, raising money is not easy for anybody. Um, you get such great support. Basically, uh, all the cop cars are Pueblo police, um, you know, equipment. It's all the real thing. And you can do that in a smaller town. I think quite often people think that they have to be in Hollywood to shoot a film, or they have to be in a very large city. And actually, uh, I think it bodes well for you if you're trying to do this in a smaller city because then everybody sort of takes it under their wing. Uh, you get donations of all sorts. You get the city and county government, the parks department all to work with you. Um, like on my Runyon film, there were people that heard about our project and Runyon had been in the Philippines during the Spanish-American War and people actually uh, let us use their ancestors' Spanish-American War uniforms. 
So you get amazing donations. And when you get a group of people together, it's amazing what things you can come up with. Well, I think that's the special thing about some of these uh, films that are, you know, just kind of these locally made um, yeah. well, in, in their own town, just these regional yeah. films that are made. Um, you're right. I mean, you do have those Hollywood horror films. Yeah. And, uh, but there's something charming about yeah. these sort of films, <laughs> you know, whether they're bad they're or hand, you know, they're handmade, you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, a, there's a handmade camaraderie item. behind it. Uh -huh. There's honesty, sincerity, sure. like sure. there's a lot of stuff behind it. And, and I, I've always kind of gravitated towards these films, uh -huh. whether people think they're good or bad, there is this charming quality that yeah. basically these normal quote unquote, normal people sure. um, with a couple filmmakers that are sprinkled throughout yeah. Um, and just have a passion for it, you know, and, and it shows it shows on screen. And it also adds a little bit more flavor because it is fun because you do have a lot of like, quote unquote, non actors yeah. <laughs> doing a lot of things. And, <laughs> and you just get a lot more cre you get creativity like this, you know, you yeah. get a lot more creativity in that rather than a, a guy walking around in a mask, you know, killing right. people, which can right. be fun, too. Right. But, you know, monster yeah. movies, especially, especially how how deep this one goes doesn't yeah. shy away from showing the monsters other than maybe the Muldoon man a little bit, sure. but you know, yeah. at least we have a barrage of characters and yeah. yeah, it's, it's just, it's remarkable that these things even are made. Yeah. Um, well, for instance, this is either Brian or Mark's room uh, in their parents' house. And so you, I always say, you know, you ride around what you can, what you have, what you, what you can find. You know, um, so it's 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 a very good structure that you have to work against. And again, it's just really how much do you want to make a movie? And so we came up with, you know, little bits like this. Um, we have uh, quite often we'll have references in these movies to, to other things that we had done, because at this point, a lot of the uh, crew and some of the cast had been in one or two of my other movies so we were working together uh on a lot of these things you know for instance this is a picture of a group uh from my pike film when he when he encountered uh, uh 60 grand pawnee in a little town called avondale real near this is something that john romero spent all night shooting you know this this candle going down you know yeah. So you sort of look at it and you sort of say, okay, how can we make this as rich as possible with what exactly we have? And I'd film things. I'd, I I would backwind things in my old Cine Special, which is an ancient camera, but a very good one. I had uh, that camera with a number of magazines. I had the uh, 16, the Aeroflex 16BL, which is a beautiful camera. It's like a fine watch. And then I had the 35-2C, which again, like I say, was used on a number of, of Bond films. Here's James Asbury. Very funny guy. You learn a lot about people during shooting. Um, a lot of people quite, kind of get involved because they think it'll be fun and so forth. And it's sort of hard, but you have to try and figure out who is there for the long run. Because it, it, the bigger the project, the more difficult the project, the longer it's going to take. 
And the more it's really going to test people. And it's, you know, you, you try and basically pick everybody that, you know, will will stick it out to the, to the, you know, end um, so that you can actually finish, you know, what you've envisioned. This is some of the great set work that um, Bill uh, Bellas or Bob, I keep calling him Bill, I don't know why, and Catherine, um, Catherine, oh my Albert. gosh. Albert, thank you. <laughs> my mind is drawing a blank. Uh, that's but, what I'm here. That's, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> because they 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 kill themselves on the sets, and like the building of the set, everybody was involved a little bit. But there are a number of people that really that's primarily what they did or decorating the sets. So Bob and Catherine. Um, Bill Sabo was an assistant that worked with them. Um, I think at one time or another, pretty much everybody was, was you know, glowing uh, brown paper on boxes or helping them texture. Uh, Brent brought in all kinds of vines and stuff from his garden to decorate the thing. Here's uh, Willard Hall. And Willard took his part and really sort of uh, created kind of a, a a funny or a goofy persona and so i wrote this in here about what they want to you know do with this guy that they found one thing if you do have actors walk on a horror film uh not a great problem because basically you can just sort of you know write a very interesting demise <laughs> and that's what they're discussing here You know, one thing um, with 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 the monsters and uh -huh. and everything. So they, I guess, those shoots were a little bit longer because uh, oh, you said it took eight hours for them to get into <clears throat> makeup. So obviously, you would shoot for uh, yeah. how how did they do with it all? Because obviously, there's a lot of pieces yeah. that are on their head. Like it, it's just not just it, a little bit of makeup. It's it's yeah. full on prosthetics. You look at the pictures, for instance, like on Loth on the left side, Brent Ritter. Uh, his had something like six or eight different pieces that had to be applied. You know, the right cheek, the left cheek, the the chin, the nose, the you know forehead, and so forth. Um, the actors got into a thing that if they were one of the main characters. Uh, loath, bore, or foreign, uh, they got into a thing of, they would come in like eight hours or so before we filmed. Uh, quite often they would have, um, in the makeup department, they would have a chair that, you know, would recline somewhat. And quite often these guys got into the thing of where they would come and they would, you know, fall asleep and try and get some rest while they were being made up. And then when they were done, then then we would go ahead and proceed to shoot. There you can see uh, the uh, contact lenses. Brent, it, we had to smoke the um, or fog the sets. And Brent, uh, those contacts really irritated his eyes. And he could only wear them for about 30 minutes. So we would shoot quite a bit during that time period, then he would take him out, rest his eyes. Then maybe we would shoot, you know, something else or someone else. Um, here we're changing one of our actors into a into a, a snake from the local zoo. Um, 
the city was very, I think that snake is still in the zoo. Um, but we worked with the parks department. We worked with the, uh, you know, all of the different agencies that you might have to encounter, you know, when you do something like this. This is one of our sets on our lower floor. We had the ghoul's chamber on the bottom in the basement and we had the witch's den. This is Bettina Julius. Um, most of these uh, people, um, quite a few of them, had always been involved with the local playhouse, the Impossible Players. And they put on a number of plays during the year. Bettina was originally from Germany. Uh, so the accent is, is her natural accent. And here's the kids showing her the disc, which I still have. It's a beautiful thing. It's really engraved nicely on, on both sides. And again, that's something that uh, the art department came up with. This was a very small and hot set. And then when you pump in a lot of vanilla fog uh, to create the atmospherics, it was just, it was, it was tough. It was hot. But it looks good. That's the thing. It does look good. It does look yeah. good. With, yeah. with the film, especially now, you know, because it's something that, you know, a lot of times with, uh, you know, some of these films and this, I think this is one of the films that have, you know, uh, quote unquote, suffered uh, from it mm -hmm. is that, you know, through the history, uh, you know, you're seeing this on film, you're shooting it on film at the time, so it looks good. When yeah. it hits VHS, and that happens through the years, and, sure. you know, DVD, the, the colors and, and, and the look, they don't pop, you know, they, they look, the movies look poorly lit when you're watching yeah. these yeah. old trends. So it's, it's kind of remarkable to see some of these things and, and sure. see how well um, they are shot and they are lit now yeah. when probably for years, people have been shitting on uh, how the film looks <laughs> and here it actually looks really good, you know? Yeah. yeah I saw some of the, um, you know, Blu-ray and, my god the detail the richness of the color it's it's great you know it is just it's really really good but look at the detailing see this is again this is what the art department came up with you know bob and catherine and everybody you know they knew what the script was and so then people started coming up with things to uh, to decorate it I don't think most people recognize or realize how difficult it is to shoot a long form piece and to keep the continuity all correct. Um, Brian was shooting over a year. Yeah, yeah. Brian was my he he was my assistant with Tamarack, so he was here for Pike, which was a tough shot because we shot in Rocky Mountain blizzards and so forth, so it was all external and. Um, Cheryl Swartz was another of my assistants. And so um, the continuity initially was handled by Pat Erickson, but then later it was handled by Cheryl. And the amount of detail of the note keeping um, that a continuity person has to do so that everything matches over time. Um, you know, it's a little known job, but it's critical to uh, making a film. And since I taught film, I had a whole library of books on specific things, um, continuity, doing production boards, scheduling, cinematography, so forth. And so I had all of my filmmaking books 
uh, at the studio there. And uh, I trained all of my all of my own crews. And again, this is some of the detail work they came up with. So, you know, Curse took two years of your life. Yeah. When, when did the initial production start? Was it 86 then or was it in 88? Um, we were in the studio on Santa Fe uh, from, uh, from uh, 1987 through 1988. Okay. Now, see, when we first got funding, uh, basically it was Brian and me in... Um, a small office in the Union um, Avenue Historic District. And that's where I did, did some presentations and stuff. But then when we got the money and we were a go, Brian's father was head of the engineering department at what was then University of Southern Colorado, which now is Colorado State University. Matter of fact, I still teach a couple um, online extended studies art history courses through them. Um, but that's when they showed me the buildings. That's when we moved into this massive structure. And that's when we, uh, you know, started putting all these things together. And then there were six months of, of editing. <clears throat> I had originally planned to keep that facility uh, and do other films there, hopefully doing Red Wind there and, and a few of these other scripts that we had generated. Um, but initially we were hoping to, um, there were two other producers that wanted to, use the facility and my crews and the equipment that we built up and the dolly system and so forth. Neither could get funding. So I finally pulled the plug and, and we were, we were, we had to move out of there. And then we basically did the editing in, in half of my front room. This is James Asbury getting pulled into the ground. And as, um, let me see, he's playing Sam. And uh, Paul is uh, Clay McCaw. And this is one of the this is one of the good bits. <laughs> yeah. And again, we're 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 fogging everything. This is a circular track. The John Romero, my very able camera assistant, he his father was a um, uh, uh, like an engineer, uh, uh, machinist, and he built us a dolly. And then we had a circular track that was built for a circular shot on Zebulon Pike, where you go entirely around him and you see the mountain ranges and Pike's Peak in the background, as we're describing young Zebulon Pike, who was a 20 something, you know, wandering the Rockies. This is basically the same setup where we basically go around uh, the witch and, and the cauldron and the kids are listening. And she's imparting some more of the message of how they have to uh, fight this evil. So the, the film, I'm sorry, go ahead. She, she was a very intense actress. She was oh very, yeah, no, absolutely. She yeah. brings another, uh, just another, uh, you know, odd character yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. To, to the film. Yeah. So, so, you know, the, the film took, you know, uh, two years to, yeah. to fully complete. And then um, what was next for it? I mean, obviously you probably did some screenings in Colorado. Um, um, basically when this was finished, I had established uh, enough contacts in California um, from all these trips over the years <clears throat> that through one of my contacts, 
um, they basically uh, referred me to a, a sales agent who had worked with Francis Ford Coppola and a number of major filmmakers. And they said, if you can get this guy, you know, he's, he's real well known and so forth. And um, you'll be home free. Well, we sent him the material uh, when we got finished with it. And basically for a year, we heard very little or anything. And finally we said, we've got to do something because this was right when the whole VHS thing came through. And um, if you remember, I don't know if you were alive then, but basically all the studios had all these films. They did not want to put them on VHS. They did not want to release them in any way, shape or form. And so here you have all these uh, video tape recorders across the country and nothing to nothing to look at. So the prices that people were getting was were immense. So finally, I said, well, we've got to do something. So Brian and I got in my car. We went out there, uh, basically uh, camped at my aunt's house, who she happened to live in Riverside, which was handy. Not real handy, but close enough. And we went to see uh, the sales agent, and I won't mention his name. Uh, I think he's long dead now, but it turns out that his copy, for some reason or other, didn't have um, good sound. And we said, you mean you haven't been presenting it? You haven't been doing anything with this? And he said, no. And I said, you know, you could have told us a year ago that you thought there was something a matter uh, and we would have fixed it. We would have done something and we could have done a, a deal a year earlier. So I think we lost at least probably two thirds of what we what we would have made on our initial deals. Mm -hmm. uh, we did the distribution. Like I say, the 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 process is <laughs> it's just it's it's difficult and there's and there's problems all along the way, you know. <clears throat> so it was through our meetings with um, me and Brian and talking to these different companies. We ended up um, doing a, a foreign uh, distribution through Amazing Movies on Melrose, not too far from Paramount. And we did um, the initial VHS uh, release through Magnum Entertainment, uh, which is which was located in Chatsworth. This is in uh, the Witches Den again. And then, um, correct me if I'm wrong with my history of the, the, the film being released. It got released like in Canada and Germany before it got a oh. U.S. release, right? Well, it it sort of happened at the same time mm -hmm. um, because uh, we went to the American film market in Santa Monica. At that time, it was being held on at Wilshire at the Beverly Hilton. And... Um, so they presented it at the American film market. They presented it at the film market in Cannes and at MIFED in Milan. Um, and it sold. I don't, it was well over 20 countries, 30 countries. I don't know. And the deals were, were all very, they were all very good. This is the mansion. Matter of fact, this is the interior of that house, uh, which again, it's, it's located here in town. Uh, it's at 38 Carlisle Place. It's in an old part of Pueblo uh, that was built up in the 1890s when Pueblo has a big steel mill and a rich steel history. And uh, there were a number of the robber barons, their kids were here overseeing their uh, their parents' things. And this house 
everything that you see in this house, that's the way it looked. Because when I knocked on the door to ask him if I could shoot the outside, it was a museum. So we really did not have to add anything into the house. This particular room here was in the studio. But whether wandering around on the staircases, uh, you know, all of the statuary, uh, the wall decorations, the woodwork, that's, that's all in that house. It's actually on the National Historic Register. Um, it's, a, it's quite a place. Here's James. That's where they get the gumption to fight, to fight the creatures. <laughs> so with the with the release history of the film, you know, the, the, the film gets out there, and then what came next for you, and what you know, what when did you start noticing that this was slowly becoming, you know, years later, obviously after its initial release was was kind of stirring up like a cult following. <laughs> Well, it's so crazy. I mean, this was all before the internet, but then with the rise of the internet, if you put in blue lights, you see things all over, you know. Um, one of the best examples is that that group in Hungary that made the video game, you know. Um, and it's funny when you do something, you sort of, you know, you have an idea of what you want to do and how you want to do it and so forth. Look at that makeup. I mean, it's incredible, you know. Um, but you never really know the end effect of where that will land or what will happen uh, because of it. For instance, when I did the Damon Runyon film, I wrote an article for the American Cinematographer magazine in Hollywood. And a guy from um, Mike Marshall, uh, who was a filmmaker in Oklahoma, called me because he wanted to do what I was doing here in Pueblo. And um, much later on one of our trips to California, he said, uh, my brother works out there. You should uh, call him up and, and go see him. Well, it turned out his brother was Spielberg's special assistant. So we got a private tour of the Amblin house-like compound on the Universal lot. So you never know where things will, where things will end up. This is where they have to feed the, uh, feed the creatures this stuff and That'll, that'll fix him. Willard's a great guy. He wa uh, was living in New Hampshire for years, and then recently, I think two years ago, he moved to Massachusetts. I've gotten, I've gotten Christmas cards from him every year. He's, he's quite something. He's a natural-born um, actor. Here you got Kent Frizzell, Clay McCaw, Again, the the uh, makeup. <laughs> he made him very pig-like, pig-like. Yeah, was that mainly like did did you let them kind of come up with the idea of sure. what designing what these people look like? Oh sure. I I think the best thing you can do, um, is bring on the best people you can find, and let them be as creative as they can be. You know. Yeah, I think uh, when you've got everybody, they know the goal, they know what you're working toward. But if you can basically tie in with <clears throat> as much of their, you know, creative aesthetic as possible, 
that's when things really start to happen nicely. This is the bit where they go through the mirror. I used to teach film history, and there's a beautiful film by uh, Jean Renoir uh, called Beauty and the Beast from, I think it's 1956. And he had that bit in there of where they would go through this mirror. And I always thought, man, that's a great thing. I'd love to do that. So here you see the mirror in its to totality as a mirror. And then you'll see these bits where they actually go into it. <laughs> we basically put the actors on a long pole with a chair and they would hang off the end of that chair and a big water tank with our uh, mirror frame around it and it worked great and sometimes i would uh, basically uh, you know run my cine backward uh, if i needed something to happen sort of in reverse and this again this is all in that uh, mansion it's actually known as the took nook nichols house built in 1891 and again uh, Ray Martinez owned it uh, at the time, and they were just great. So we shot in there quite a few times, but it's gorgeous. You know, it's just gorgeous. And this is one of the, you know, accidental things that you, that you run into. And so hopefully you're able to, you know, incorporate these things, you know, as, as you uh, discover them. Initially, I thought of loath as a tall dark-haired um you know guy like vincent price or something but then brent was on my crew and he was reading against all these actors that wanted this part he was the best one so i totally rethought it okay brent you're loath you know now we just have even more more effects, more zombies. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of this and getting all these? Because I mean, I imagine a lot of this with the cast and crew um, yeah. dressing up. Yeah, right. This might be Joe or I'm not sure. Now that was shot in the mansion. This was shot in our studio. Uh, we built a small room uh, in the studio just for this one bit. So like this bit, it might take a week to build the room. So it's being built as the ghoul's chamber is being built as the cemetery, you know, like uh, with the cemetery, we worked with a, a memorial company, Marvin Memorials, and they had all these discarded or, mis you know, mistake um, headstones. And we worked with the Arkansas Valley Sod Farm and they gave us all the sod. And then uh, Bob Bellas went down on the, uh, the fountain and the Arkansas River bottoms and got the trees and constructed the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. I think one of these is John Romero. Uh, I think that's John Romero, if I remember right. Um, Says the guys that did the makeup love the makeup, so they made up each other when we needed, you know, an extra person or something. 
And then this is a whole casting call. Uh, that person, the, the woman at the top of the stairs, I think is Brian Sisson's mother. Uh, Brian's uh, parents were both in it. Uh, Dixie and Ray Sisson. Uh, there's one shot here where you can see my brother-in-law. Let's see. Yep, yep, yep. Yep, so they're all closing on in on me with the camera. <laughs> yeah, I think John Urkel might even be in there, which is uh, Brian's uncle. There's there's my brother-in-law, Joe Ponikbar. Yeah, Joe's on the bottom there, turning back to look. There's Kent on the stairs. And again, he came up with the thing of, you know, this guy has a breathing, this creature has a breathing problem, you know? And it's nothing I told him to do, but they would, again, bring their own creativity, you know, to it. And I think that's the main thing you have to do when you have a project like this is surround yourself with the most creative people uh, that you can and then let everybody, you know, run with it. Sometimes you have to say, no, I don't think so. But quite often their ideas are very good ones and you want to incorporate that. Yeah, and you just create more camaraderie oh, sure. and obviously sure. better performances and yes. you know just yes. the morale on set you know and and, and everybody i mean it's with anything sometimes that's yeah. why you need advice when you write you know a, right. a story right. a book a you know script you know sure. definitely input constructive criticism sure. really 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 brings projects together well brian knew the genre so thoroughly and he and his brother had been messing with this stuff for such a long time that when they had the chance, they pulled out the stops. Like these face bladders. This is James Asbury. As Sam. <laughs> with the disc. And there's the breaking of the mirror. After we were done filming it, as a, as a total mirror. And I was in my early 30s. They were in their 20s. We're all young and goofy, like how he talks, you know, with the lips and then he burps. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Oh, my God. So every time something, you know, crazy like that was available to us, we'd we'd stick it in there, you know. So what uh, what came next for you? I mean, this is your 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 final film. Yeah, it is my final film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I went to California in part because they the distributors that I had worked with and I would met so many people, um, different producers and so forth. Uh, they said, "Boy, it'd be so much easier if you came out here. We could put things together and so forth. You know, uh, you have all these scripts and such." Uh, what I didn't realize is that at this point in their career, what most filmmakers do is if, you're, if your film makes a couple hundred thousand, you don't pay out profits. You basically take that money uh, and you go to Hollywood and you say, okay, I've got 200 grand or so. Do you have 200 grand? And you combine with somebody, everybody goes in for half and you make another movie. <clears throat> But uh, I didn't feel I could or would or wanted to do that. And so we basically paid back 
most of the money that investors had put in. And matter of fact, uh, even recently, I sent out um, checks to uh, a number of the actors and crew who were profit participants who stuck out the entire film. This is um, this is uh, Forn's funeral. Uh, we still had, uh, you know, the elements uh, of him, and so I wanted to send him off like a, you know, a Viking chieftain or something. So uh, to answer your question, basically, I, I pretty much went back to teaching. I've taught in colleges and universities all up and down the front range of Colorado. Like I say, I, I still do a couple of online uh, extended studies classes for CSUP. Uh, I've taught for the uh, uh, University of Colorado Denver and community colleges, eight or ten of them. Um, I did I did some teaching when I was in California and uh, worked some video productions and so forth while I was out there. But uh, it gets in your blood, you know, uh, it's addictive. I mean, it, there's nothing more enjoyable uh, in this life than to come up with a concept and then, uh, you know, work it into a script. And there's Brent again. Great, just great. And Kent. Kent was a high school student, the initial actor that we'd picked for it. Uh, they made the makeup for him and stuff. And after the first time they totally encased him in the makeup, he said, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, but I cannot. He was claustrophobic. And so really at the last minute, uh, we looked around and Kent was there. And like I say, he was a high school kid, but a natural performer. Again, he was just uh, just so great. He took to it like a fish takes to water, you know. Marty Bikini again is the cop. No. Marty's a great guy. Another another teacher. <laughs> There's teachers all the, way, all the way around this thing. He's a high school teacher. Yeah, how did the um, kind of everything work with the police department? Because you have quite a few police and police oh, yeah. cars. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have the entire Pueblo uh, police SWAT team shooting at me. And thank God they knew more about guns than that, you know, one person did in Santa Fe recently. Because I'm, I'm being shot directly at by the entire SWAT team. And a lot of this had to do with Captain John P. Urkel, who is Brian's uncle who was a, a murder detective with the Pueblo Police Department. And so he was able to get me all the help um, with the all the cops and the guns and the cop cars and everything else. And of course, they all got into it. They created uh, the uh, door coverings that say, you know, Dudley Police Force and so forth. Um, and again, you know, people were, whenever I did a film, people were following it in the newspaper and so forth. Uh, sometimes we'd have open houses so they could come and look at the sets. And you do that to build as much community involvement as possible so it becomes everybody's film, you know. A group, a group uh, achievement. Debbie DeVincini. As Sandy.
the costuming, for instance, like uh, Loth's costuming um, and the uh, uh, costuming that uh, the creature wears, this was all done by Carol Cartmill, my costume designer on both the Zebulon Pike and the Blue Mountain film and on uh, Curse of the Blue Lights. She has a, a master's degree in costume design and she, again, she far surpassed anything I asked from her on, on the films. So for instance, this is a great part here where he's talking to the disc and he's got, he's got his pet snake there. But uh, for instance, Carol on Zebulon Pike, uh, we contacted the uh, historian for that period for the US Army. And she recreated a transition uniform between the Revolutionary War period and the War of 1812 because Pike was in Colorado uh, from 1806 to 1807. He built the first uh, U.S. structure right here at Pueblo and you know, on the inside of the uh, Louisiana Purchase. Good thing Brent wasn't afraid of snakes. <laughs> you know, yeah, so something that you have to always look out for, especially yeah. in war films, is when your creatures creatures wear clothes. Yeah. You know, it, it, some, it just... Yeah. It's 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 something that looks like it's not gonna really work, but it really does work yeah. in this one. Yeah, this is Brian Sisson and Mark Sisson's mom, if I remember right. And this again, this was a, a, a cutaway grave that we put in here. Let me see if I can remember okay, this is Brian Sisson coming out of the coming out of the ground. This section here where they're coming out of the ground, this is one of the best parts of this film. I mean it just it's just very good. Dave Romero coming out of the ground. <clears throat> and this is our set, the big 100 by 150 uh, cemetery on the main floor of our studio with the trees from the river bottom and so forth. So we have a mix in here of of actual tombstones and styrofoam tombstones. And this here, I do believe, is, let's see, this is Mark Sisson, who ended up going, uh, quitting. He was working for Sperry, a computer company out at the Pueblo Airport, decided he wanted to do makeup effects full time. He quit during the very last part of our film, and this is me doing a point of view shot and then putting their hands in, in front of me. Um, he went to California and worked on tons and tons of pictures. This is, uh, I believe, John Urkel. This is Cheryl Schwartz, who is my assistant director. That's my brother-in-law, Joe Ponikvar. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a real, you know, family affair. These, you know, a lot of families got involved. And what was the initial response reaction from all these family and friends like it's oh, something they it. talked about frequently or you know oh, yeah. how do they feel yeah, they love it. yeah every once in a while you know somebody like there's my brother-in-law wandering off the screen um they all loved it um these projects are so like this one because of the money situation because of the complexity of it because of the number of you know, of sets and people and so forth that we had to coordinate. It took a very long time and um, it's hard to keep the group focused on what, you know, what is the end point. Um, 
And so a lot of times on my films, people were about ready to strangle me by the time it was over with, but then they look back on it. And these are, you know, these are uh, real cherished memories. You know, they, they look back on it as, as some of the best times of their life. Well, when you, and when you bring a group of people together, it's sort of like a, an extended family. Yeah. And you're around these people for long, hard days in a very intense situation where you're trying to accomplish very specific things in each shot. And then after that, everybody, you know, sort of goes their, goes their way, own way. I had the good thing of that a number of the people that worked on earlier films, you know, stayed with me for, you know, later films. A number of the people that played Indians in the Pike film are in this film as zombies. Yeah, I would ask you what the most difficult thing to was achieve, but it sounds like just getting the movie fully <laughs> fully made for work on yeah. it for so long is yeah. pretty much pretty much the answer to that. Yeah. Well, you uh, ask so much of people, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that's why it's really critical as much as possible. Again, the bigger the project, the longer the time involved. If there's some way or other that you can kind of determine who will stick it out? Who will be there, you know, when the last shot is done? <clears throat> but yeah, they all worked as crew. They all worked as grips, you know, lighting this and carrying that and so forth. They had a makeup effects guy that we paid, uh, Mike Spatola in Hollywood. And he was the first guy that Mark talked to when he went to California. And Mike was just great. He was on the phone. They were on the phone with him all the time. And the composer, Randall Chrisman, very good composer from Pasadena. Um, he recorded the soundtrack in hi-fi stereo. Um, synthesizer, great guy. Yeah, I talked to him about this and he was he was so impressed that the film was actually coming back out. He couldn't make time for the interview because he's still you know obviously composing sure. and stuff but he sure. he was just so shocked that you know the longevity <laughs> of of you know just a movie yeah. in general but you know yeah. low budget films like this that sure. actually have you know 40 40 years of a life you know yeah 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 yep but i had so many good people ed sanchez was my sound man and he's also a zombie in here someplace Carol Cartmel, the costume designer, the regular costuming. Cheryl and Brian were my assistant film editors, but then uh, Ed Sanchez, my sound man, and John Romero, my camera assistant, they also did, they were the film syncing crew because we'd get back the sound at 16 full track mag and the uh, prints, and then they would cut them together and then we would have screenings like once a week. And that's how we sort of kept going, you know. And then Cheryl, uh, like Brian, really went above and beyond. She was the regular makeup um, supervisor. Dave Romero helped her out with the regular makeup. Kim Pease helped out with the makeup. Uh, Robin Erickson, Gwen Erickson. Uh, Robin helped with the hair. Both Robin and Gwen helped with the regular makeup. 
And then the storyboards before we actually even got under production. Cheryl Swartz, Willard Hall, Deborah DeVincini. Uh, we had about 700 drawings. And so we would have a board right next to us. And as we were going and shooting, we would just mark them off. You know, here's shot 652 of, uh, you know, a hand coming into the frame or something. Now in this shot, uh, this is the tunnel coming into the thing. On the left back, that's uh, Brian Sisson's mom. Brian Sisson's dad is further back there. And again, he is head of engineer of the engineering department at uh, what is now Colorado State, uh, Colorado State University Pueblo. I think that's the more charming thing is the parents being in this. I, I didn't know that. That just makes it. Yeah, isn't that a trip? I don't know. It just makes it, like you said, I mean, every, every film is a family. Yeah. You know, but yeah. It, it's it's a little bit different when you're actual family. You're actual family, yeah. Well, I guess yeah. they've always sort of, you know, I guess the whole family has really been into, you know, horror movies and effects makeup and so forth. And so they really got into it. Yeah. Uh, we were doing this, you know. But like John Urkel, the cop, you see him shooting and quite often, sometimes he's, you'll see, then the reverse shot, you'll see him as a zombie in the distance, you know, and Kent, Kent worked as, uh, you know, one of the main ghouls, but he's also a zombie. A lot of the, a lot of the bunches. <laughs> and then we, there's an effect shot coming up here. But yeah, all the city agencies um, got involved and I can't thank them enough because uh, I couldn't have made the films that I've made here without their help. And I lived in Burbank for four years and just to shoot on a street would is thousands and thousands of dollars. And I'm talking a street. Here's an effect shot. There we go. In the pictures, you can sort of see how we did this. Very effective. Now, with uh, you know your your teaching and everything, uh -huh. do you ever ever show this? I've showed excerpts of all of my films. Uh, for instance, I taught for a while at Colorado Film School, which was uh, in Denver, and I showed excerpts of this. Um, yeah, I would you know if I was teaching film and I needed to show something, I would take in a a copy of it and show them this or that you know i would i would take in uh, scripts that i've written here's another effect there we go um you know to try and um you know get them to really understand you know what they're involved with lots of people want to make movies but only a small percentage actually go that next step i used to have all the facts and figures of how many films were made how many films were begun in the country every year how many films were actually completed every year, how many films were distributed from that group, how many were successful, you know, how many got any kind of award. I've always thought as long as I have a myself, a camera and an actor, I can make a movie, you know, and that's the yeah. way I've sort of approached it. Kubrick, uh, Stanley Kubrick said that, <laughs> and that's so true. You know, here's, here's Brent again. He's just, he's just great. 
was such a fantastic singer. Just incredible. Real rich, deep voice. And Randall Christmas, Christmas um, music right here. He's got sort of like wailing sounds or something. Uh, I mean, he just does a great thing. And his, his music when the sun comes up, you know, it really is a, an excellent payoff for the whole thing. You know, that they were able to stop the creature and you get this really wonderful music as the, as the lens zooms out. Another effect like this. It seems like nothing, this one shot, but it took probably a full day's work. We shot that in uh, Brian's parents' backyard because they had uh, had the tank set up there and stuff, and they had just finished that skull. But yeah, all these, all these little things, it doesn't seem like much, but then when you try and actually do it and accomplish it, you run into problems at every turn. This right here is, is one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. He reveals the creature and then he's sort of addressing not only the creature, he's got the magic disc which will bring the creature back to life when he's filled up, you know, from various cadavers that have been dissolved. Here he's, here he's not only addressing the creature, but he's also addressing these damn kids. <laughs> Because they tried to stop him, but they didn't, even though he's, he just got skewered. Yeah, this creature, the, so he's a Muldoon man, right? Yeah, Muldoon. And that was an actual creature. Um, there was a shyster in the 1880s that came up with this idea that he would uh, create a missing link and sell it to P.T. Barnum for his, you know, oddities show and stuff. And Pueblo is 20 miles from the mountains and halfway between here and there is a little hill called Muldoon Hill. And this guy buried this sort of missing link creature inside of that hill. And that's where he said he discovered it and so forth. And so that's where the Muldoon man came from. Uh, that's actually out of Pueblo and state history. Of course, he didn't look like this. <laughs> and you can see, you know, some of the mechanics there of the face uh, being maneuvered and, and moving and so forth. I sort of wish, now you can see some of Carol's costuming covering where the different pieces of the prosthetics uh, meet, like on the shoulders and so forth. I kind of wish I would have lit that, you know, more from the side, but it was so beautiful I had to show it. I gave in and I wanted to show it because they'd kill themselves. Well, that's the thing is like so many of these monster movies in the 80s, you know, obviously they uh -huh. wait until they show the monster at the very yeah. end. It's actually refreshing to see yeah. a creature feature be a creature feature <laughs> the entire time. So yeah. I applaud you, applaud okay, you for, for that. <laughs> Here you can see some of the mechanics of the blinking eyes and stuff. They had all those all those cables going down his back to control those. He was actually looking out. George Shands was looking out the nose. He could see sort of a little bit out the nose, but he was about almost seven foot. And then when you added the whole, you know, top part of the thing, he was over eight feet. This is the Pueblo, Colorado SWAT team, the real SWAT team. Yeah, that's one of our cops there. 
We had Tom Cody, Rich Goddard, George Rivera, of course, John Urkel, Eddie Rhodes, Dayton H. Robinson. They all got into it, you know? So this was a, this was a long night. And this is our straight track dolly that John Romero's dad built, which really worked just so well. And we use the same thing here in the studio. So we're cutting from actual practical shots at night to the studio. And again, this is continuity. So this was Cheryl's thing. Okay, he didn't have that on last time or he did have it. Matter of fact, you can see Cheryl to the right. That's her in a shot. There's my brother-in-law, Joe, falling down. I think John Urkel is in there someplace. <clears throat> and then this shot, you know, and then we did some detail shots and some close-up. That's John Romero, my camera assistant. And then them coming out of the actual mansion. Yep. Some more of our crew. That's John Urkel to the right there of um, Marty Bacina. There's a creature. This actor had to be pretty big too. Yeah, her chance is almost, like I said, almost seven foot. Here's another bit. This is Kent Frizzell as a zombie. <laughs> <laughs> so they can, any of these kids can go through there and they can watch it and they can, you know, find themselves in there like 10 times or something, you know. But the university was fantastic, you know, giving us the building. Uh, we worked out deals with uh, Russia's lumber company, a local lumber company, a local sod farm, you know, a local uh, monument company. There's our, this is actually filmed. This is the studio and then the sun, stuff of the sunrise is actually filmed in an actual cemetery of the sun coming up. That's in the, both these are studio. That's actually when we did the cop thing out in the real, a real evening in our creature. Now this, I'm the only person that's been shot at by every, every member of the Pueblo <laughs> team. And they loaded, they loaded them up. I mean, I could sort of, I could sort of feel things, but fortunately they knew what they were doing and I lived to tell the, to tell the tale. Those are uh, swabs. That was toward the end when we, you know, little by little, we destroyed everything that they created. They had to create, for instance, yeah. on the ghouls' heads, they had to create like 20 sets or 25 sets because every day it was a new set. Marty. And how often do you think you, or when's the last time, I guess I should ask, that you watched Curse of Blue Lights? 
I watched it the night before um, I did that interview uh, in Aurora, you guys, just to refresh my memory. It's been a long time, and uh, I was pleasantly surprised. I was, I you know, I laughed and so forth, and yeah, I was I was very pleasantly surprised. Well, it's a fun movie, you know. That, that's oh, the yeah. thing. It's 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 a yeah. it's a timeless fun. Yeah. Fun movie, you know, and uh, uh-huh. something I grew up grew up with. So good, good. These are three different cameras: my thirty-five, my sixteen BL, and the Cine Special. I like the I like the explosion so much. I put it in there three times. <laughs> it's a good explosion. <laughs> it, it is look, a good it looks explosion. Like it rocked it a little bit too. <laughs> yeah. 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 But they went through a whole thing of whether once we were there and set up and everything, if they could do it. And finally, I think John Urkel just took the bull by the horns and said, because we had a fire truck. We had the police. I mean, we had everybody there. And so yeah. they went ahead. Right here is where Randall Christman's music is just great. He has a real positive, you know, sort of uplifting uh, sound that goes with this that sort of shows all the different elements of the zoom lens I was using. So all is all is back, all is restored. And we go back to blue lights again. But yeah, I mean, there's so many companies, so many people, you know, that I that I have to thank. My my father became involved on this picture, basically helping me to um, change my other backers. You know, by buying them out, and then we went forward and so forth. Uh, it was just a very intense time in in everybody's life, you know. And this is a, a lot of these people are are my crew members making out in these cars. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of them in there. But yeah, it basically, it took us about, it was probably about two years overall in the production. And then there was like a year where we were waiting for the sales agent to do something. And then uh, Brian and I went to California and basically put together the whole thing. Got the distributors. And they did, they did good. I mean, they got it out. Uh, you know, the, the, the the plans that they that they set up and the sale and the markets that they sold it in i would really like to see some of the foreign theatricals because i'm sure that uh you know the the sound is much clearer because we didn't do adr we didn't have the money and so you can really uh really hear it hear everything clearly always like this ending too with the just the blue lights yeah going through And if you watch the titles, the titles on my on my films are all long, because uh, on the on the the early films you couldn't pay them hardly anything. On the middle films you paid them something. On this film we paid them pretty good, but you never really pay them, you know, what their creativity, what their hard work is worth. Um, and so I figure at least, you know, they'll have their name on the product because they stuck it out. They were there, you know, really to the end. Richard Brill, great guy. Catherine Keating, 
Uh, she provided the wagons and, and horses and stuff for all of my films. As USC and so forth. Western City in Denver. There's all the people in Denver that helped me. Well, we are uh, coming close. Uh, here we go, about 45 seconds. Um, anything else? Any 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 last, last thing you would leave us with? Well, I'm glad that uh, there's an audience out there for, for this film. Um, and I'm happy that people enjoy it and that they're still enjoying it. So blue lights forever, I guess. <laughs>